Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Mark Fraley Podcast. Today is Friday, October 7, 2022. This is the 89th edition of our program. As always, thank you to Ron Trammell and the Cats Tribute Band for our exclusive intro music. Fall is definitely in the air around Nashville, and temperatures are moderating and nights are cooler. I noted this morning that they are setting up for the Fall Craft Fair at Centennial Park. It should be lovely weather for that event. However, we need, we've had 25 straight days with no measurable rainfall, and even the drought-tolerant native plants in our garden are showing stress. Nashville is among the largest cities in America, which has no connection to the Amtrak passenger train network. If I have my facts correct, Nashville, after a century-long history of robust train service, lost its passenger service in 1979. At that time, the last remaining route was the legacy route formerly known as the Hummingbird. This former L&N route once ran from Cincinnati through Louisville, Nashville, Birmingham, and on to New Orleans. Since 1979, Nashville has established NFL football, NHL hockey, built a colossal convention center, and become the bridesmaid capital of the universe, but has not seen fit to reestablish intercity rail service. And until recently, this has not even been on the policy radar, with the notable exception of former Congressman Bob Clements' strident interest in rail service. Recent events, especially the passage of the Biden infrastructure bill, have revived interest in passenger rail. In the last session of the Tennessee legislature, a resolution was passed to authorize a study to be done, and legislative committees have met with Amtrak. And so, our guest today, Alan Crosby, is a principal in the Grassroots Southeastern Passenger Rail Initiative. I sat down with Alan yesterday, and we had a lively discussion about all things passenger rail and what the possibilities are for Tennessee. And so I hope you'll enjoy this interview with Alan Crosby. And we will get started right after this brief message. Hi, this is Heather Lose, Editor-in-Chief of the Tennessee Conservationist Magazine. Every year, we publish six beautiful issues packed full of timely and informative stories about Tennessee culture, people, and places. You can stay informed about your world and all the great things happening in your Tennessee state parks. It's easy to subscribe. Just go to our website at tnconservationist.org. Thank you. Alan Crosby, welcome to the Mark Fraley Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Alan, uh, just for the uh, sake of our audience, you're coming to us from North Carolina. Is that what I remember? Actually, you're coming from Washington, D.C. currently. I see. Okay. All right. Um, Well, welcome. How's the weather out there in Washington, D.C.? Honestly, it's good today. Uh, the last few days, I'm in love with you. Um, I drove up here from North Carolina, I think, uh, last week. Okay. And once I got up here, it's just been rainy and cold. Fall has definitely arrived, to say the least. 
I wish we could get some of that rain. Now, you had some of that rain that came out of that recent hurricane, I presume. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. basically followed that thing all the way up the coast. Uh, once it kind of came back over land in South Carolina, it's just been a downpour in the Carolinas, Virginia, and D.C. for the last week about. Well, Alan, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, passenger, you know, this, this, this podcast is about things related to conservation, in the mm -hmm. environment for the most part. And uh, in the broader scheme of things, um, you know, that's about land use and about infrastructure and all those things have to do with the wise use of resources. And that's what conservation is all about. Mm -hmm. um, so transportation issues um, are definitely part of what we would like to talk about on this podcast. And you have a, an initiative going on called the Southeastern Passenger Rail Initiative uh, that caught my eye as I was uh, browsing that, that subject on Facebook and other social media. And uh, you were nice enough to agree to come on and talk. Tell us about, the, about your initiative and, and how it's organized and what you're trying to do. Absolutely. So we're a new group. Um, we're primarily grassroots is, I guess, the big theme of who we are. Um, just a little background on myself and kind of the people involved. Um, I'm a foreign political consultant, so help with primarily elections. Uh, ran for office myself when I got out of college. Um, and then a couple people I work with are also political consultants. And about a year ago, I was in uh, working down in South Carolina and had a race down in South Carolina. And just a quick story, um, I put up a social media post for this candidate. I'm not going to say his name, but... It was about trains and it didn't, wasn't really about trains. It was just the general theme of we need to get people moving across the district. You know, movement generally brings better economy. It brings more education opportunities. It gets the area that for the most part had been kind of dead since the 1990s with the reurbanization of much of the South, big rural area. So it's just keep people moving. And I put a train on the post and it just got the nastiest reviews, to be honest with you. Oh, no. People didn't understand why. Oh, it did. Yeah. It just got the nastiest reviews. People said, this is too expensive. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't like an old locomotive. It was some high-speed train from Europe, like an ICE in Germany. It got horrible reviews. But all the reviews I saw, and be honest, were just, <laughs> to put it lightly, completely untrue like the the criticisms were just wrong right. to say the least right and it was stuff like you know it's too expensive we don't have the land use um they'll never get through congress we'll never get through the state house no one will write it it can't happen the worst one i always see is you know the south particularly isn't dense enough to justify rail so there's no point of building it in the first place and a lot of criticisms like that now um I've been looking into rail personally for, uh, you know, learning about it a lot of the last few years took like everyone else took a trip to Europe, got on the rails over there and just like, why don't we have this here right. kind of mentality. So I started talking to some people and we're like, the biggest issue that we saw on the campaign trail was not that the people really disliked rail. Cause once you started talking to them, it's like, all right, this is what it could be. It could cost this, it, you know, you could get from A to B in half the time without a car. People really got excited. So it was just 
more education was needed about rail more than anything right. else. Right. And once people got educated about it, they were gung ho for it and they were become advocates. They went from being pure opposition to pure advocates very quickly, right. which is why we started this org is mainly to do that, to create more advocates for rail and thus build the political pressure needed to get state legislators, uh, local city councilmen, mayors involved. Because that's what we feel is, and take your experience, everyone has their own experience with politics, particularly in the Southeast. I have found that most politicians have two or three things they really care about, right? Whether it be taxes, education, infrastructure, whatever. And then they have a long list of things that they're interested in, but not really care about. Rail generally fits into that category for a lot of politicians. So if we can get enough grassroots force, enough people on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter saying, you know, tweeting at their representatives going, why don't we have this here? The political pressure will build. And then once a bill comes across the floor, even though they may not be true rail advocates in the state houses, they'll say, well, my constituents want it, so I might as well vote for it anyway. Right. So, and you're you're primarily dealing in the southeastern region. That is correct. And, yes. And, and, um, we have some passenger rail. Uh, of course, the Amtrak uh, sort of heritage uh, or legacy units that go north, south, east, west, um, and then. North Carolina and Virginia have their own state rail services. Am I correct about that? You are, yes. And I, they actually have pretty good ones, to say the least. I um, actually just did a, a little thing today. We did a little thing today about how uh, Virginia is about to become one of the premier rail states in the country, let alone the southeast, uh, with their east-west rail expansion. And then in North Carolina, they have plans to do the same thing to create a intrastate interstate network, you know, connecting all the major population hubs. And how, how is that funded in Virginia and North Carolina? Or, or, or is that different in, in, in each of the states? It's different in each of the states. Yeah. Um, and it's very, which rail in the Southeast, and I want to kind of put in the context of rail in the Southeast for this, um, funding mechanisms are going to have to be almost the priority conversation when it comes to rail and south, if we're going to expand, if we're going to create good networks. And there's a lot of different mechanisms in place to do that. And Virginia and North Carolina are great examples. Um, so in Virginia, they have Amtrak as the operator, and they actually also have another service called a VRE, which is more of a regional commuter rail that deals with uh, Northern Virginia. Okay. Now, so they have two operators. Amtrak provides the service and the equipment, but it is almost completely funded by VDOT or Virginia DOT. Okay, okay. Provides the, and then in North Carolina, it's a little bit different. So in North Carolina, there's a company called the North Carolina Railroad Company. I believe it's just like RRNC or something like that. Okay. Where they owned, where they own a track that connects Charlotte all the way to the coast and goes through Raleigh. And they can have complete control over the scheduling and the leasing on that track. Yeah. And then what th that company is 100% owned by the North Carolina government. And they, it's a publicly traded company with 100% of the stocks owned by the government. Gotcha. And because of that, they- So it's a public utility, can, right? 
it's basically a public utility operated as a private entity. Um, and then what North Carolina does is they just have Amtrak operate the train, but they provide the train itself and they provide the scheduling. So gotcha. it's just a little different. Each one have its own niches. Well, and then Florida has a little bit of Amtrak, but now they've got this Brightline service that's going on. Yeah, which I think personally, if rail in the Southeast takes off, Brightline is doing some incredible things that may, you know, every place in the Southeast is slightly different. However, they're doing some good things and their good things are, in my opinion, modern rail, which is great. They got the newest technology that is available, tier four admission standards It is the cleanest rail service currently in the country. Um, it's comparable with pure electric rail in the Northeast and, you know, compared to other Amtrak services, particularly, uh, and the best part about it, as far as the Southeast concerned, hundred percent privately funded, they issue bonds. Now, I think that will be changing here soon as they move into Orlando. It looks like the track is going to need to be bought a little bit by, uh, local government entities because they're doing some commuter service, but for the most part, it's privately funded, it's clean, it's efficient, they run hourly service. And the thing that's different to them compared to any other track I've seen in the United States is they got a new track built within a five-year window, which everyone knows infrastructure in the United States. If you can do anything within a decade, you're ahead of the competition by light years. And the, and the, the Brightline service is from Orlando to Miami, basically, is that... I... Yes. So currently they're running hourly service just to, I believe, somewhere around Boca Raton, um, Fort Lauderdale. I think it's Fort Lauderdale. But they will be opening a new line that goes 110 miles an hour, I believe even up to 125 in some places, to Orlando like at the end of this year. It's a, so a brand new service. Looking forward to riding it personally. Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage uh, people to... Um to get on YouTube and, and j just uh, do a YouTube search for Brightline Railroad Florida. And there's numerous um, really sharp, uh, sharply done videos on, on that service. And, and it's, they're beautiful trains and well-equipped and uh, new stations built. And so um, sort of the high end, but that's, you know, and that is, private enterprise doing, doing, doing it basically. So Amtrak really has no, no role to play in that, except I, I presume Amtrak had to give them permission to operate the service. Actually. So just fun fact, no. no. Um, so okay. the way it worked is Amtrak and Brightline used two different routes uh, to get to Orlando. Okay. Um, Brightline uses the old Flagler East coast, Florida East coast rail. Okay. And then I believe for, uh, Amtrak uses a internal service. Now that corridor is going to be, I wish would be the model for the entire Southeast because you have a hourly service that's on modern new commuter-based trains in Brightline. But then you also on the other side have three or no, sorry, two Amtrak services with the overnight trains to get to Orlando. So the people from Orlando to Miami have a plethora of options to work with nice. as far as the rail-based travel, nice. which that should be the model throughout the Southeast, nice, frankly. Nice. Well, let's bring this home to Tennessee for just a minute. Um, in, in preparation for 
today's talk with you. I, I got online and scouted around our Tennessee Department of Transportation and what they had available. Uh, and we do have a, a, passenger, a, a rail plan for, for the state of Tennessee, which of course is heavily loaded in, in freight rail plans and processes. Uh, but there is a mention of passenger rail uh, in, in, the, in the Tennessee rail plan. Unfortunately, it's mainly just a listing of what we have, which is very little, and what other states that are adjacent to us are doing that might affect us someday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with, with really no uh, actual plan to reach out or to be proactive in making anything happen uh, in Tennessee. So today in Tennessee, passenger rail is limited to the, uh, the city of New Orleans train that runs from Chicago to, to New Orleans and stops in Memphis and in Dyersburg twice a day. Um, and the Music City Star, which is a uh, commuter service that operates between Nashville and 30 miles to the east, Lebanon, Tennessee. And that's it. And it, it's, a, it's, and it's a real shame because we had, we had a, a pretty robust system of passenger rail in Tennessee up, up until just after World War II. Um, and, and of course, the uh, Amtrak service uh, was lost to Nashville in the mid 70s, I'm thinking, or maybe late 70s. I believe that's correct. Yeah, mid, I think it's late 70s. So, you know, it's it's so it's so interesting, and part of the part of the motivation for doing this was our Tennessee legislature this uh, past session passed a resolution authorizing. Uh, a study to be done by the Tennessee Commission on Intergovernmental Relations. Um, unfortunately, the the um, the description of what they're supposed to to provide in terms of a product is pretty vague. Um, but they're but they got in line because the, the the folks from Amtrak actually came to Nashville and met with the legislature this past year, and it got some people excited. And mm -hmm. what they had, what they proposed was a, a route from Nashville to through Chattanooga, then to Atlanta and on to Savannah, Georgia. So um, using existing track, um, but, uh, but so far this, the, the state has not done any kind of actual planning for that, nor have they done any kind of budgeting. So talk to me about that. What are, you, what are your thoughts about passenger rail in Tennessee? Uh, so I took the time to read the, the state rail plan that you mentioned. Um, and the, right off the bat, the biggest thing that concerned me about it was the phrasing, I believe it was like on the first or second line, the, role, the goal of this document is to uh, manage and maintain the current rail system was the like, I believe like the first phrase. And at that point I went, oh boy, this is gonna be and, a very and we, long And read. we have no money to do anything more. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, they, they kept saying, right. Um, so, which is a shame, cause you know, you look at the history of Tennessee and there was a lot of really good routes, um, you know, Louisville, Chattanooga. I mean, Chattanooga was a rail hub 
you know, up until the Civil War and even after. And yeah, with the consolidation of the rail industry, in particularly culminating in the 70s with the savior that was Amtrak, Tennessee lost uh, proportionally to any other southern state almost all of its passenger rail, which was just terrifying. I mean, it's a real shame. But at the same time, there are some unique opportunities that Tennessee has that I would say even North Carolina or Virginia or some more rail-oriented states don't have, which I think really need to be looked at. Uh, you mentioned the Music City Star. Uh, that is an incredibly valuable asset that Tennessee has. Um, I was looking through some plans. There are some limited plans right now to expand that. You know, I believe it, there's only one line, like you said now. The, the initial plan, it looked like, was to have five or even six lines of heavy rail, you know, expanding out of Nashville. That exactly. would be very exciting yeah. to see. Yeah, the hub of the wheel uh, sort of thing, yes. To Clarksville, mm -hmm. to Lebanon, Murfreesboro, Franklin. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And another just generally good asset you have, specifically in Nashville, that Riverfront Stadium is such a valuable asset. The location is ideal the fact that you have heavy rail right in the middle of downtown is something that a lot of cities within the Southeast have given up, have chosen to give up over the last two decades, which kind of feeds into my bigger point is even though the service has been lost, a lot of the bones of a good system still remain intact. And it's just the case of as the people of Tennessee, do you want to invest in that? Right. Now, just looking over the rail system again, I th the inception of the long distance route, like the city of Tennessee, or sorry, the city of New Orleans, for example, those routes don't do the Southeast particularly. And I don't think Tennessee a lot of justice or a lot of good, frankly. I like in the state rail plan, it even mentioned how like Tennessee has one of the lowest ridership numbers on that route which makes sense if you and a lot of the southeast falls in the category of that um you have routes that originate in new york and chicago or in new orleans and florida and they pass through south carolina tennessee at odd hours in the night often an hour delay so the people of tennessee can't get comfortable riding it it's not really useful to them for rail to work in tennessee I think some low-hanging fruit like Amtrak, the Nashville to Atlanta was the perfect way to get back, you know, right. is, all right, let's find a route that's a few hours that doesn't require you to get a bed on the train, for example. You can do a day trip down there, and then you can build from there. And I think that's a pretty good start. So, like I said, the bones are there. However, there are some major hurdles for Tennessee to have a good network in the future. For instance, the lack of any real one route that connects Memphis to Nashville to Knoxville. Right. Like I was looking at the realm, there's not there's not even a train, um, like a single route that connects those three cities. So yeah, leads to some problems, but also some opportunities. Certainly, there's a there's adequate rail to get pretty easily. Uh, a route established to Mem to Memphis from Nashville, mm -hmm. uh, but from Nashville East, there used to be a thing called the Tennessee Central Railroad, mm -hmm. and the Music City Star that exists today is running on their old track. It's now called the Nashville and Eastern Railroad, and that that track is good up to Cookville, 
And from there, uh, the, the, the old Tennessee Central Railroad used to go to Harriman, Tennessee, which is just north of Rockwood. And, the, mm-hmm. and the, so the, the track from, from Harriman to uh, Cookville is, is basically gone. It would have to be re- redone. That's my understanding of it. That's what I saw on the map as well. Yeah. Um, and so that would be a major hurdle. And uh, the, But the tracks from Nashville to Memphis are used every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the tracks from uh, Nashville to Chattanooga are used every day. They're hev- heavy, uh, heavy use. Uh, but, and I, I presume they're owned by CSX, those tracks. So, yeah, so the one to Memphis is owned by CSX. I believe the one to Chattanooga is uh, a combination of Norfolk Southern and CSX, okay. which right. that <laughs> Norfolk Southern doesn't have the greatest relationship with passenger rail. Um, but that being said, uh, looking at those tracks and looking for the future of passenger rail in Tennessee, those are good freight tracks. One of the biggest issues that we see all throughout the Southeast is freight tracks are not good passenger tracks and passenger tracks aren't particularly good freight tracks either. And you see that a lot in Amtrak in the Southeast is you have certain sections which can only accommodate a train going 25, 30 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So in order to get it to good passenger standard, the speeds have to be raised quite a bit, right. which leads to a big problem in Tennessee and in the general Southeast is uh, these freight railroads, they don't dare lick their tracks, but they don't need to keep their tracks up to passenger standards. So even just introducing a service doesn't mean you're going to have a good service, which is something Tennessee and the South need to be aware of going into building a network. Just because service is there doesn't mean people will ride it. You know, it has to be on time. It has to be accommodating. They need to be able to make, you know, if they book a trip and they have a connection somewhere, they got to know that they'll at least get close to making their connection. So just because you have a service doesn't mean it's going to be a good service. Exactly. And so it leads to a lot of opportunities for Tennessee. Now, one of the things that we've advocated for, and I don't know if this has been discussed in the state house or if you discussed it, uh, new track along interstate corridors as a possibility to get um, higher speeds exclusively for passenger rail. Right. Uh, we've had a lot of discussion on that. Instead, and that way, you just bypass the freight railroads completely. You don't have to worry about them maintaining it to passenger rail standards. And, you know, uh, that allows in the future possible electrification. It'd be awesome to see some, you know, French style TGV trains shooting down 40 in between Knoxville and uh, Nashville. I think that'd be the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And th- those trains are so, are so slick and they're lighter weight. So they, they could go a little quicker. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, the, looking back at the need for this, Nashville, Memphis, Knoxville, Chattanooga have all built out the interstate highway system. Um, you know, in Nashville today, we have uh, I-40 coming in five lanes in each direction, east and west. You know, and, and it's full uh, mm-hmm. at, at many times of the day. Um, and so I think we've about about built out the interstate system 
uh, as much as as practically could be done. Uh, so we're having we we absolutely need to be looking for other solutions to getting people from point to point. I could not agree more. Um, a principle I'm sure you're aware of: induced demand. You know, just because you could build out your interstates to 15 lanes each. I mean, you really could. Right. And my guess is there'll still be traffic on them. Right. And if you're a driver, if you're a real car person, now I'm not a big car person. I'll be the first one to admit that. But if you're a car person, advocating for trains and large inner city transportation should be on the top of your priority list. Just for instance, a new car like Amtrak just did a massive purchase with a company called Siemens um, out of it's a German company, but they have a plant in California to basically redo all their passenger rail cars. Those cars in their not even tightest configuration can fit 70 people per car. Per Each car. train has nine, ten of those. So, I mean, you're looking at 700 people, and the way I equate that is to the 700 cars off the road. You know, if you look at DOT statistics, the majority of trips, the vast majority of trips are single occupancy trips, right? Usually, and that includes interstate travel. If you can take 70, let's call it, well, even not even say 70, 50 cars off the road, you know, per car, multiply that by 10, that's 500 cars off the road just by having one train on the track. That makes driving easier for everyone. It extends the life of these interstates. And it's one thing we talked about actually in my last campaign was with the introduction of electric cars and particularly electric trucks, the weight of these cars in the future is going to be significantly heavier. Just for instance, a Tesla, uh, I'm not going to say Tesla, uh, your general electric car, don't want to drop any names just in case some people listening, um, weighs around about 4,000 pounds, right? Versus your Honda Accord, which weighs around 2,000 pounds. It's double the weight. And I don't know about you, but I already drive over enough potholes as it is. And particularly as the interstates get wider and wider, it costs more and more and more to maintain them, right? And the thing about interstates comparatively to trains is I don't purchase a ticket to get ride on the interstate. So the cost of maintain, consistently maintaining and expanding these interstates, is just purely coming out of my tax dollars and right. sales and gas tax. Gas and tax. it's not, right. yeah, it's not subsidized by the drivers, you know, the initial driver themselves. So as we go into the future, we're going to have to figure out a way to get people off the roads. Um, it, our infrastructure just can't maintain that much weight for that much time every single day, particularly once electric trucks come on board, which I'm sure they will in probably the next decade or so. So you know, trains a, provide a a great I options. I did not realize that the electric cars were that much heavier. And I presume that that's because of the, of the batteries being so heavy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's wow, the thing. So interesting. And, yeah. And just as a general thing, cars are in, I saw a little study cars in like the 1920s comparatively to now. So a hundred years we've, I think 15 times the amount of weight from initial car inset when our roads were initially designed, when it asked, cause that's the one thing also I try to tell people asphalt is a very much a 20th century technology. Asphalt hasn't changed that much since the seventies and the eighties. Right. But since the 70s, cars have only gotten heavier. And this includes internal combustion cars, too. 
have only gotten heavier. Rides have only gotten longer. People are sitting on the asphalt for more and more time. Again, derelict, it's just going to deteriorate faster, which means you're going to have to spend money to improve it. So why not make the investment, whether it be through the private sector or through the public sector, and get people off the road? So A, people who like me who aren't particularly big fans of driving have another option, but people who generally like driving won't have as much uh, you know, gas costs because they're just sitting on idle. They won't have the maintenance costs because the roads will last longer. It's a win-win for everybody. So Alan, looking at, if we if we have a listener who's interested in in this topic and wants to stay abreast of what's going on, um, what would you advise them to do? Well, there's a lot of good organizations out there which all have their little niches um, niches that keep people informed. Um, Going to just drop a high speed rail alliance if you're focused on high speed, you know, point to point high speed rail. They're a good organization. We focus primarily on the Southeast. So um, like I said, we have our website, um, sepassengerrailinitiative.com, that we try to keep people up to date on what's specifically happening within their neighborhoods if you live in the Southeast. Um, and then the last thing is just, you know, like anything else, pay attention to the news um, and learn about the benefits from these organizations and just do a quick Google. Like I said at the beginning, I have yet to find a person who, if you actually explain it in detail, the benefits and red, blue, purple doesn't matter their political affiliation whatsoever. Rail, uh, the phrase we like to use is rail is a good. It's good for everybody. It's good for drivers. It's good for passengers. It's good for the environment. It's good for the economy. It's good for everyone. So just learning and advocating will get this done for the Southeast. Let me ask you this. Um, we had um, this spring, uh, the Congress uh, pass a, a huge, huge infrastructure bill uh, signed into law. And every news report that you read about it talks about passenger rail. But that's as far as we ever get in terms of information uh, about what it includes and what we should expect from that, from that bill. Um, I, I, do, I do have a notion or did, have heard that Congress ordered Amtrak to study the re-initiating of some of the, of the passenger routes that had been discontinued uh, by Amtrak. So tell us about that. And what, what do you know? What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So the infrastructure bill, I want to say this, it was the biggest, it was the biggest injection of funds into passenger rail within, uh, I think the last like 50 years, which is good. We needed it desperately. Um, now what it does on more of a kind of an everyday level is it provides particularly local municipalities, and even states, the ability to access funds to create their own services. So when we look at rail generally in the Southeast, okay. we kind of- Say that again. It, it oh, allows them to do what now? Access grants and funds uh, to start projects or more importantly, maintain the infrastructure that we have in place, okay. which has okay. frankly been forgotten over the last about 50 years or so. Okay. So 
rail, when we look at rail, it's a tier system, right? We have at the very top Amtrak, which is our intercity, national intercity rail service. All right. Now, the portion of the bill, which desperately they needed was to update their equipment. And thank goodness they are going to. They got, I believe, like a $35 billion contract with Siemens to completely overhaul their entire equipment section um, outside of the long distance passenger cars. The trains have been replaced and they've been replaced with fantastic tier four emission standard diesels uh, in the Southeast and in the Northeast, the um, new Acela electric trains. Now, that's phenomenal because the current locomotives, I don't know if you've seen some pictures recently, those things belt out more diesel than honestly the old steam locomotives did back in the day. <laughs> like those things just, it's a black cloud of smoke that followed those old Genesis locomotives around. So that's exciting. Um, and what also the infrastructure bill can do for, and it's whether municipalities and state and local agencies take advantage of it, is help them with like the Music City Star help them get the funds to get these projects that have been sitting, and you see this a lot in Southeast, every state in Southeast has a rail plan, right? And every Southeast has a wish list of rail projects they wanna get done, but have always, you know, for the recession in 2008 or changes in administrations have had stymies of funding. So this will give them the opportunity to get an influx of cash in order to get these projects completed, which would be great. And a lot of them is focused a lot, frankly, on like light rail. Um, I, know, I know in Nashville, there was a plan for a little bit to have light rail, but I think that got voted down a few it years did. ago. It got voted down, right. Yeah. Um, so hypothetically, if that was voted through, uh, they would have the opportunity to get some of those federal funds to inject and get like projects such as that done quickly. Got you. The um, yeah, we had a, a referendum on a transportation plan here in Metro Nashville, and um, in fact, you can listen to a podcast about that that I did uh, with Walter Searcy, who's a board member of our uh, local transit authority. Um, that we did a, about that project, and you know, it was it was a very very expensive uh, plan that they did, um, mm -hmm. and it. I think they could have they could have probably gotten something that was an incremental pro project approved rather than something as grand as, as they had proposed. So sometimes you you propose the grand and and you lose. <laughs> so honestly, that was I looked at the vote today and I looked at the plan a little bit. I could not agree more with your assessment right, there. Right, right. Um, and I think that actually is a it's a good way to look at rail in the Southeast to a degree is we have to remember in the Southeast that no one, particularly my generation or even the generation ahead of me or the generation that's being born now has ever experienced good rail ever. Um, the only time they've experienced it is when they go abroad and go abroad to very specific wealthy places at that, you know, the England's, the Germany's, the Japan's and so on and so forth. So, when building these this infrastructure, and I agree, this is going to your point, the price tag is what scares a lot of voters quickly, particularly in the South, right? I mean, our budgets are already tight as it is, I mean, for reasons. Yeah. So doing a single line, for example, and I think a good 
Charlotte, North Carolina did this really well. Governor Pat McCor or at the time as Mayor Pat McCory did this well. They built a line in an area that was underdeveloped, that was no one really lived on, that everyone complained, oh, no one would ride it, no one would ride it, no one would ride it. But to build it there was cheaper. It was a cheap line. And then once the line got built, the development came, people started riding it, people started using it, they started to like it. And then suddenly, all right, let's do an extension. No one complained about the extension at that point, even though the extension exactly. was almost double the price. Exactly. And now you have another project, the Silver Line, which is a east-west extension that the mayors who 20 years ago were complaining and moaning and groaning about it are begging to come to their towns now. You know, so it's just people need to learn. People need to well, you know, you're, try it. You're, you're making a good, a good point. And uh, just taking the Music City Star as an example, um, you know, that's that's a line that just goes 30 miles to the east of Nashville. But what, what we're seeing is, as you described, uh, uh, people building uh, multifamily uh, housing units there and uh, because people can get into the city easily uh, without having to get on the interstate. It's, so it's become a highly desirable um, it's added a feature to those communities that, that they could never have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you know, so, so the perfect can be the enemy of the good. So I guess the first thing is to get something good and then, and work from there. Exactly. That's it. One of our big things in our organization is, you know, there's a tier system of how th we think things should be built. Right. Um, first off, the thing that's most important is having a service. If you don't have the service, you can't advocate for more service. And then once you have the service, you got to make the service good. You got to make sure that people are wanting to ride it, that it go, that it's cheap, it's affordable. You know, it doesn't need to be cheap, but it needs to be affordable so people don't get turned off by it. Um, it needs to go where people, for the most part, want to go. And then it needs to be updated and modern. Um, you know, we advocate for new cars or at least refurbished cars because if people feel like they're walking back into the 1920s, they're not so inclined, you know, having exactly. outlets, having exactly. Wi-Fi, being clean, those it being ADA accessible, surprisingly important. Even if those I have found a lot so of time, interesting. Yeah. People who even aren't in the ADA category still want ADA accessible level boarding, not having to go up steps. It's easier to take grandma onto the train, you, little things like that make the service good. And then suddenly, like I said earlier, you have people who begin to advocate for it, you know? Well, you know, the east of Nashville has a service. I live up in the north across the river. Why don't I have it? You know, you could take the train from Clarksville to Nashville in 1870. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you, and that's just not available now. The track is there. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, so, uh, you know, it's got to be a back to the future sort of a situation, I think, here. Um, you know, I've just a related experience. We were in, in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico this last year. And uh, of course, Santa Fe is the state capital, uh, relatively small town for to be a state capital, you know, 40 or 60,000 people. Um, a lot of the people that work in state government live not in Santa Fe, but live in Albuquerque, 60 miles to the south. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
they were expanding the interstate north and south uh, from Albuquerque to Santa Fe uh, to the point where they just decided well, they just couldn't couldn't do that anymore. So they initiated this rail runner service from from uh, Albuquerque to Santa Fe that runs two or three times a day, and it's not a it's not a high speed train by any means. I think fifty or sixty miles an hour is as fast as it goes, um, but it is an overwhelming success, uh, and it's clean, it's sharp, uh, it's it's you know as you say it's got the um, Wi Fi service there, so you can do your work while you're while you're riding, and uh, so it's had a, an overall uh, grand effect there for New Mexico. Well, you see that across the country. I mean, you really do. Uh, once the service is in place and once it, you know, once they get to the point where it's consistent, now that takes time. It's very important to make a note where, you know, if you put a service in place, but you don't have the timetables correct and you don't have the frequency is correct, you know, people won't write it. But if you can get those things correct, you know, let's do hourly service that people can set their clocks to that, you know, your train is going to leave on time. People love it. I mean, and you see it everywhere in the country, a new service pops up, people write it. Uh, you look at this, you know, I was looking at a lot of what I do with this is just look at state rail plans and projections. Every state rail plan projection for the most part is inclining at a pretty rapid rate. You know, they expect more people to get on this, particularly with the reurbanization that we're seeing a lot across this country and in the Western world. Let me ask you this. Have you, have, has your organization been working with the, uh, the, uh, the organization of mayors, big city mayors uh, in, in the South uh, to, talk, to talk with the mayors so, and county executives about this? Yeah, so we have reached out to a handful of different mayors across the southeast, uh, been getting good responses, primarily in suburban areas. Um, one of the things we really focus on is low hanging fruit. Uh, regional rail, I think, is a great asset for the southeast, particularly almost above any other above light rail, even almost above uh, inner city, although inner city needs to happen in the southeast, particularly within the states. Um, we're reaching out to them and we're reaching primarily reaching out to candidates is the big thing right now is getting an idea of who is for rail and who is against rail. And we think that's an important part of uh, midterms are right around the corner, as I'm sure everyone knows and is sick of seeing at this point. But we feel like it's important for the voting population to know, like, all right, this candidate is you know for putting a train through my town that i can ride and this one is lukewarm on it or this one is really for it and this one's really against it and that puts us more in the mantra of i mean that's more the mantra of our organization is we're not policy creators like we, there is a bunch of good great organizations even whose exclusive job is to write policy for rail where rail lines meet good engineering people um our organization is very much designed on the grassroots. We need to just convince people that the idea of trains is a good idea. And because right now, I would say in the Southeast across the board, that is not the case. People don't like trains in the Southeast as a general concept. So before we get to the point of saying mayors, all right, we need a budget of train versus road in your next cycle. 
we're trying to get the people in the gallery to go, we'd like to train all in the budget at all. You know, we, we want this to be a factor in the 2022, 2024, and 2026 election cycles. Right. And we, we do have some legislators in Tennessee that are that are interested in and have a good positive attitude about trains. Um, and this this is not uh, by any means a political uh, podcast and uh, that's by design. Mm. I, uh, people that know me well know I have my own political views. Uh, <laughs> but that being said, uh, just to point out that uh, uh, Congressman Steve Cohen, uh, is a Memphis congressman, and he has introduced several uh, bills in Congress to fund rail from um, and, and to explore the possibility of rail uh, from Memphis to, to Nashville. Um, ha- has not gone anywhere, but uh, still there's an interest there. And we have, uh, we have some uh, legislators in our state legislature that, uh, that are beginning to be interested in this. That, you know, I, I think it's important for listeners to, to talk to their legislators about rail. Uh, if, if, they be, if they begin to hear it from actual citizens, um, when they hear it from folks like you and I, then, then uh, they'll listen a little bit better, maybe. No, I, I could not agree more with you. And that's just, again, from personal experience, um, when legislatures and just people in general, uh, when they hear things, they're willing to listen more and more and more, you know? So as far as your listeners, if they, if your listeners care about rail or want to see rail in Nashville or rail in Tennessee within the next, you know, and it's also important to keep in mind, this is not going to happen overnight. The tomorrow, you know, you see these on, um, you know, Washington Post, an article, I think fairly recently about this, a high-speed rail network connecting the West coast and the East coast is not going to happen tomorrow you know it's just not no matter how much we want but what we can do is like if someone rides the music or the music city star right take a picture put it on facebook tag our, our organization tag another organization say hey this was a great time and then their friends see that and then maybe you have one or two friends that are like all right I'll go on the music city start next week instead of, you know, I'll drive five minutes, 10 minutes out of my way to go get on the train. It looks like fun. I can go downtown for dinner, have a couple of drinks and then come back and not have to worry about anything. Um, but that builds momentum. And the more people see it, particularly, you know, we live in this digital era where you can see the world without ever leaving your couch. If you see this and you see your friends advocating for it, then a conversation happens. And then next thing you know, there's going to be someone that accidentally talks to a guy that's going to run for office in five years. That's like, you know, I would love to get on the music city. I wish the music city star expanded to my neighborhood or man, I wish I could go see my grandparents down in Chattanooga and not have to drive, share those pictures, tag organizations, tag uh, transit orgs, tag your congressman, tag your local reps on social media, spread the word that way. Listen, we're, we need to wind up here, but let me ask you one other thing. You know, we were talking earlier about the Brightline service in in um, Florida. Am I correct in in, um, in in remembering that they're also going to be involved in a in a service to into Las Vegas? 
They are. It's called Brightline West, which I think is going to be the most interesting project in American history, frankly. So from L.A. to Vegas. That will be from L.A. to Vegas. Right. It is going to be America's first true high-speed rail, equivalent to the Eurostar or you know the big trains over in Germany. Right. Now, the thing that's interesting about that project is – that the South should take note of and legislatures and people and advocates in the South should take note of. It's going to be privately funded. Number one, number two, it's running down an interstate, which will be really the first time in American history. A high speed rail is a built brand new and down an interstate corridor. Right. You have examples in like the California high speed rail association, which is doing like uh, piecemeal, like they're just going a straight line across property. Right. But if the Brightline West works out well and they can keep on time and keep in budget, that could be the catalyst for good inner city rail throughout the southeast. Because suddenly sending fast trains down interstate corridors becomes a lot. There's a court. There will be court cases. There'll be precedent for it, which right. has really been hampering building something similar around. Oh, really? Airport. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, that would be an interesting approach for Tennessee would be to bring, um, a private sector operator in, um, to see what they might do, uh, between Chattanooga, uh, Nashville and Nashville and Memphis. Um, those, I mean, Nashville and Memphis is a straight shot mm-hmm. um, and, and really there's not a, a lot of, um, geological geographic uh, features that would slow slow the uh, the train down uh, especially once you get west of the Tennessee River mm-hmm. um, the, the, the ride uh, down to Chattanooga is a little bit more problematic because uh, you got to go over the mountain to get down to Chattanooga but um, but bright it'd be so interesting to to see um, a private operator like Brightline you know, in in um, in Scotland, we saw uh, Virgin uh, Rail uh, mm-hmm. there, and uh, so you know, Virgin has a hotel service and an air, airline, and they also have a rail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, as far as na- I know, they don't have any rail service going on in in uh, North America. Uh, they were okay. So just a little side note, and then we'll okay. get back. Uh, they got so close. So Brightline, Florida was supposed to be Virgin. Was supposed to be Virgin Trains. Oh, um, okay. Unfor- okay. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the group who actually owns Brightline, it's a Fortress Limited. It's a equity. It's a big firm out in New York, I believe. Um, they just couldn't come quite to an agreement on the branding and the cost and so on. So we got real close to having Virgin Trains in the United States. Well, see, there you go. That's that's a <laughs> that's a thought. I mean, they they are obviously train operators. They know how to do it. Uh, they, they do it in a first class manner. Um, so that would be an well, interesting, interesting idea. It, that is so important also for just rail in the United States is to bring over partners who know what they're doing. A right. big hurdle, and you're seeing it in California high-speed rail right now, and this is just an opinion. Um, since we haven't built rail in the United States to high quality in so long, I mean, a hundred years long, there's just not many domestic contractors and designers who know how to do it well we need to bring in other partners to get 
rail to a good standard, which we shouldn't be afraid of, in my opinion. Again, this is just pure opinion. Um, but that when that happens, hopefully once rail starts to build, and I do believe we are at the beginning of a rail renaissance, that term has been floating around a lot, you know, with the infrastructure bill and a few other reasons. Um, at, at the beginning of that renaissance, hopefully in the next couple of decades, we get some domestic experience, some domestic, and then it just gets easier and cheaper and like everything else in our economy, the more supply you have, the, you know, if you have demand, supply, the price comes down and everything will work out. So, Alan, it's been a, a, a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, I hope that the listeners will get on your website and sign up for your mailing list so that they can they can continue to be informed about what you're what you all are doing. Um, and um, if uh, if ever there are um, tidings of news that you would like to bring to our listeners about service here in Tennessee, let us know, and we'll be glad to accommodate. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. And just a little plug. Yeah, just sepassengerrailinitiative.com. Uh, just on it, we have our uh, couple petitions for some new rail services around the Southeast that would love people to sign. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and yeah, we're very accessible and love to have people sign up. I should say that, that that's I found you first on Facebook. Uh, and I don't know why you your uh, post appeared on my timeline one day, but it did. And um, uh, so thank you for that. And I, I would encourage people to, to find you on Facebook and like you so that you'll get uh, the occasional uh, posts that you do. They're very, they're very informative. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, please like us. <laughs> well, thank you, Alan. We'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it.